everyone keeps telling me how my story is supposed to go. Nah, I'm gonna do my own thing. The journey begins with the not-yet-hero in the comfortable, familiar known world. Then, there is a call to adventure. Then, a mystical or magical aid comes to empower the hero on their journey from the known to the unknown. At the verge of the unknown, there are threshold guardians, characters, or events that test the hero's resolve and try their commitment to continue their voyage into the unknown. Once across the first threshold, a hero grows with a mentor or helper. They face challenges and temptations. And then, the hero plunges into his lowest point, the abyss. But the abyss is also a place of revelation. It is a death and rebirth. Emerging out of that abyss, reborn, the hero has transformed into something more. But one final task remains in the hero's journey before he returns to the known. It's what Joseph Campbell referred to as atonement with the father. The hero must confront a father figure and either overcome this father figure or somehow be reconciled with him. This recurring pattern we saw across many of the great stories across time and culture was identified by the 20th century mythologist Joseph Campbell, and it is commonly known as the hero's journey or the monomyth. As we've been going through the series on the emerging form of storytelling and art called metamodernism, some of you may have wondered, is it possible for there to be a metamodern hero's journey? Can the hero's journey be told within the vocabulary and aesthetic of metamodernism? I think it can. In fact, you may have already seen some remarkable examples of it. This is part three of metamodernism, the metamodern hero's journey. Thanks for listening to Deep Talks, exploring theology and meaning-making. I'm your host, Paul Anleitner. This is a listener-supported podcast. If you're finding my podcast to be helpful or the other work that I do over on my Substack, YouTube, etc., please consider supporting on Patreon. There are no advertisements anywhere in this podcast. I don't monetize my YouTube channel. I don't have subscription charges for my Substack. I do this all based on the principle of freely give, freely receive. So I hope that if you're finding this to be something that you listen to regularly, that you're learning from, growing from, maybe even sharing with others, that you'd consider supporting on Patreon. You can find a link to do so in the description below. To understand how the hero's journey or the monomyth of traditional storytelling can be present within metamodern storytelling, let me first bring you up to speed on the basic premise of Joseph Campbell's thesis, in case you're not familiar with it. Joseph Campbell was what you might call a mythologist. He did his undergrad and master's at Columbia University and then did postgraduate work in France and Germany, where he really began to do his comparative analysis of medieval literature and mythology. While studying medieval literature and uh, the traditional storytelling of not just medieval societies and cultures, but also ancient cultures, Campbell started to notice a pattern. Why does it seem like the myths that have stood the test of times across cultures, why does it seem like there's something similar about them? Campbell started to notice these common themes, these symbols and motifs in myths across culture and time, which he believed demonstrated universal aspects of human storytelling. His most important book, the one 
most people are probably familiar with is called The Hero with a Thousand Faces, which was published in 1949. And in that book, Campbell introduced to broader audiences this concept of the hero's journey or the modern myth. And this became a foundational textbook in the study of myth and storytelling ever since. Campbell has been hugely influential on the subsequent generation of storytellers and filmmakers. Campbell's concept of the hero's journey, the modern, the mono myth, what was that all about? Campbell saw in these stories recurring patterns. That's why he called it a hero, the hero with a thousand faces. He saw in the great stories of old a reoccurring story told over and over again. A hero with many different faces across many different cultures, language barriers. There seemed to be something about these stories that would resonate not just with their local cultures, but even would resonate with other cultures as well. What was it about these stories? Campbell saw in these hero stories, the ones that stood the test of time, some recurring patterns. He saw a hero who embarks on an adventure, faces trials, challenges, undergoes a transformation, and returns back home with wisdom, with skills, with expertise, with a, a magical elixir, which he then or brings back to his community. And I'm saying he, you know, there, there are certainly instances where you, you can see this play out with female heroes, but by and large part, these are male-centric stories. Now, obviously, we're going to get into how that leads to, you know, postmodern critiques of Campbell, postmodern critiques of traditional and modern stories, which seem to be male-centric, focused on male-centric heroes. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But for the time being, I'm going to continue to say he because it seems to be most accurate to what Campbell was describing. How can you understand Campbell's hero's journey, this monomyth? Maybe just like trying to understand modern metamodernism, which we've been doing in the past two episodes, you know, maybe the best way to really grasp what the monomyth is all about is by actually looking at examples and then noticing the common flavors, the the, the recurring cycles and patterns that we see in each example. In doing this, we might be able to decipher the patterns, decipher the commonalities. So let's talk about some common examples. These are, you know, if you took a class on um, mythology, if you took a class on storytelling and there was Joseph Campbell in the syllabus, you're likely going to talk about many, if not all, of these stories. So here's some common examples of classic hero's journey, archetypal pattern embedded in the story. Let's go all the way back into ancient Greece, into the work of Homer. You can see in Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey, great examples of this hero's journey, the monomyth playing out. So like in, in the Odyssey, right? This is, this is one of the earliest and most famous examples of the hero's journey. In the Odyssey, this epic poem follows Odysseus as he embarks on a long and arduous journey home after the Trojan War. 
He faces these trials, he battles monsters, and then as a part of this journey and process, he undergoes personal transformation before returning back home to the kingdom of Ithaca with, again, with something to give the community. This is very important. The hero's journey isn't just about the development of the individual. Hero's journey is about how the individual, the transformation of the individual is intended to lead to the flourishing of the community, that the the home community that that individual is a part of. You can see it in the Iliad, right? So the Iliad by Homer, um, that follows the story of Achilles and Hector during the Trojan War. Achilles in particular experiences a hero's journey. He grapples with his own mortality, personal values. Um, In more recent times, you have stories like The Wizard of Oz, right? Dorothy. Dorothy, this is maybe one of those unique instances, like I mentioned, where you have a, a female character at the center of this hero's journey. Dorothy goes to Oz and goes on this hero's journey. She encounters allies, enemies, faces challenges, and ultimately comes back home with this appreciation for home. She has learned something, and in that learning and transformation, she's now better equipped to return back home to Kansas and to be more of a blessing to the place that she inhabits. Some other great examples. Uh, you could you could look at, obviously, you've got uh, The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. You know, we start with The Hobbit. That was Tolkien's first book, which was much more geared towards children. Bilbo Baggins goes on this quintessential hero's journey, all right? He is a reluctant hero. He starts at home quite content where he's at. He is met by this magical, mystical advisor who invites him out on this journey, on this adventure with a group of dwarves who need to reclaim their homeland from smog. Along the way, Bilbo faces dangers. He gains confidence. He gains XP, right? That's like what my kids would call it from the world of video games, experience points. He discovers these strengths within himself. And ultimately, he has to confront the dragon, overcome the dragon, and return home. Of course, this story plays out again in the sequels to The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings. Frodo, Bilbo's nephew, now sets out on this quest, and it follows, obviously, a very similar pattern initially, where Gandalf shows up now to invite now Frodo, not, not just Bilbo, Frodo on this adventure to destroy the One Ring. And of course, Frodo goes through a series of challenges, temptations. He is uh, has these threshold points, right? Where there are guardians at certain threshold marks and he has to, like the ring wraiths, right? That would be one example of a threshold guardian where the ring wraiths are a barrier to... Frodo's continued transformation and maturation into being a hero. And along the way, his friends accompany him who help him get over these these threshold moments. He's got a wise old mentor, a mystical wizard in Gandalf to help guide him along his path too. And so again, Frodo goes through this journey as well. And with the assistance of his friends, he is able to overcome Sauron not by a sheer act of might, but by the employment of virtues, not only of 
his his own his own virtues, but the virtues of his close companion and friend Sam, who carries him up the mountain when he is unable to go further. Right, one of the I love that scene. That's like one of my favorite scenes in uh, Return of the King. It's a beautiful story. But this these are quintessential heroes' journey stories. You can see many of the same ingredients. Like if you sat down and you compared the Iliad and the Odyssey with the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings, you there would obviously be some differences. There would be some differences in morals. There would be some differences in what these symbols might be pointing to, what values they might be pointing to. But by and large part, you're seeing a similar pattern play out here. What would be some other examples? Um, You could go with Harry Potter, right? J.K. Rowling. Harry Potter, similar story. Young wizard, ordinary life, discovering magical heritage, faces challenges, has to battle the dark wizard Voldemort, and then, you know, in doing so, he has to confront Voldemort before he can ultimately fulfill his destiny. You could look at the Matrix as another example. How is the Matrix portraying the hero's journey? Well, the story starts in Neo in the ordinary world. I mean, it literally is about as ordinary as it can get. That's what it's it's trying to convey. Neo has a boring nine to five office job. He's an ordinary computer programmer. He's living in this pretty mundane existence. He's got a mundane job and he spends his free time like searching the internet for conspiracies. And uh, in doing so, he is called on an adventure, right? The mysterious hacker, Morpheus. Morpheus could, might as well be Gandalf. Um, he might as well be Obi-Wan. We'll talk about Star Wars here in a moment. He's playing that same role. Now, obviously, you know, there, there, there aren't necessarily mystical, magical powers that Morpheus employs, but it does seem so to Neo, right? In his existence in the Matrix, Morpheus can do things outside of the Matrix that, that seem beyond right? They would, they would seem magical. They would seem mystical. They would seem supernatural. And you, you all who've been listening for a while know how much I typically despise the word supernatural, but you get that as you see Mor- Morpheus and Neo interact. So the call to adventure happens and Neo's life takes this dramatic turn as Morpheus invites him to start questioning reality, to, to go on this journey. Morpheus sees something more in Neo Initially, Neo's reluctant, right? And that can often be part of this hero's journey is there's an initial reluctance from the hero, a, a refusal of the call. Neo's skeptical. He's reluctant. You saw that with Bilbo. You saw it with Frodo. You see this reluctance to go on the journey. The known is comfortable. The unknown is not comfortable. But initially, even though there's this refusal of the call, you move beyond that and the hero goes beyond that initial refusal, wants to go deeper. Neo eventually agrees to Morpheus. He takes the, the red pill, and uh, he sees how far the rabbit hole goes. So he then crosses the threshold, okay? In the hero's journey, you have these important thresholds where we move from known to unknown. And it, they can happen in stages, right? They can happen in stages where there's this initial, obviously, leaving the home, the known. There's the reluctance 
about leaving home, leaving the known, leaving the comfortable, leaving the familiar, and you face maybe a barrier at the edge of the known into the unknown, and you cross over that. And so in the Matrix, it's Neo taking the red pill with with Morpheus, and he's already been confronted by some threshold guardians. He's already encountered Agent Smith already, who seems to be someone that is trying to prevent him from going beyond that threshold into the unknown because Agent Smith knows that there's this great destiny for Neo that he has to prevent from happening. And man, that's why these stories resonate with us so much, right? It's why even as I'm describing it now, you go, man, I want, I want that. <laughs> I don't want to be in the matrix. I don't want to play out that story. But we all want this experience of moving from our comfort zone moving beyond the place that we know to a degree of unknown, to face challenges, to be on an adventure. There's something in the human appetite for, for this. Uh, we can think about this from a theological standpoint where we, we have been made in the image of God. And so we ultimately yearn and long to have union with the source. We have, we long for union with God. In the Greek tradition and the Eastern tradition, they called this theosis among the, the ancient church fathers, a tradition that has continued on again through the, the tradition of the church in the East and Eastern Orthodoxy, which is about a journey of union with God, a, a journey of returning in, in deep communion with uh, the source, with that, with the God whose image is imprinted inside of us. But we could also think about it from a scientific standpoint. We have our serotonergic system, which is hardwired in us to associate our mood, our happiness, our sense of satisfaction with whether or not we are pursuing goals. And by its very de definition, goals are things which are like currently beyond us. There's something that we're aiming at. And so these stories resonate with us on multiple levels. And I'm not trying to bifurcate the, the scientific and the theological, because I actually think there's, they, they find union, they find harmony together. They're, they're speaking to the same reality. Why is it that we are never satisfied? I've written about this and spoken about this before. But that's why these stories like The Matrix, why The Hobbit, why Lord of the Rings, why they so resonate with us. It's because as we see Neo facing his initial threshold, we go, I, I really want to keep going. If I were Neo, I want to take the red pill. I want to move beyond the known to the unknown. And even if that's dangerous, there's something about that that seems enticing to us. But moving beyond it isn't easy either, right? Okay, so we see this again in the Matrix. You, you see once... He moves beyond the known into the unknown that he faces trials and tests. Life outside the matrix isn't easy, but he has assistance. He's got guides. He's got helpers. Just like Frodo, just like Bilbo, Neo has not only Morpheus, but he also has Trinity. Uh, he's got others there that are there to help him on his journey. He continues this journey into the inmost cave. And of course, the oracle is another guide along the way, a wise, enigmatic figure who provides guidance to Neo. Neo still is experiencing moments of doubt and personal growth as he grapples with his destiny. This is all part of the journey. 
Neo's ultimate ordeal is his confrontation with Agent Smith in a climactic battle. After defeating Smith, Neo experiences a transformation. A transformation, right? A transformation that he actually, in order to defeat Agent Smith, he actually has to, what apparently looks like, lay down his life. No spoiler here, the movie's been out for whatever, almost 25 years now. But Neo dies at the end of The Matrix, the first Matrix movie, which is oftentimes an important part, an important symbol in the hero's journey, a symbol of death and resurrection. And so after Neo confronts Agent Smith, after he lays down his life, he is resurrected. And in this resurrection, he is now equipped with what we can call again, he, the elixir, you know, that you often see that in the, the more classical and traditional stories that a, a hero returns with some sort of magic sword, with, a, with something that would be extraordinary, that would now give this person the ability to go back to their home, to transform their community, to protect their community, to, to contribute to the flourishing of the community. Of course, that happens in Neo's story. He dies, but he comes back as the one, and then he goes back into the Matrix with the hopes of, of, of pulling people out of their own state of delusions. Another great example of this, you can see this, and probably one of the best we could point to would be Star Wars. George Lucas was heavily influenced by Joseph Campbell. He was very, very vocal about Campbell's influence on him as a storyteller. And so Star Wars begins with A New Hope. I'm starting it, <laughs> the story where the story began for Lucas with the hero Luke Skywalker in a comfortable, familiar to him world. But then he receives that call to adventure, supernatural aid to come and empower him on his journey. At the verge of the unknown, there are these, again, threshold guardians. There are things, people, events, which would maybe be a signal you should stop right here. And this is where the hero must figure out, will I continue or not? So for Luke Skywalker, that first threshold guardian was Mos Eisley, you know, the wretched hive of scum and villainy. So Luke goes there with Obi-Wan and he also not only encounters people that are unfriendly <laughs> and might be a warning to him, like, dude, you're not cut out for this. There's also stormtroopers there signaling, hey, you know, this movement to the unknown is going to be dangerous. Luke, along with his supernatural aid, Obi-Wan meet new companions, Han and Chewie, and then they move past that first threshold, that first barrier in the Millennium Falcon from the known to the unknown. Across that threshold, Luke, as a hero, grows with his mentor, his helper. He faces challenges, temptations, and then he plunges into his lowest point, the abyss. You can see that at the end of Empire Strikes Back. But the abyss for Campbell is also often a place of revelation. So when the hero reaches their darkest moment, when it feels like all hope is lost, that is often a point of tremendous revelation. An epiphany can happen and rebirth can happen. Emerging out of that abyss, the, the hero can be reborn and transformed into something more. And of course, you would see that in Luke's, Luke's journey after Empire Strikes Back, when he comes back into uh, the very first scenes of 
of Return of the Jedi, there is something different about Luke. He is clearly more powerful. He's got a new, different colored lightsaber. There's something that has happened for Luke. That final part of the journey, though, for Campbell, the the atonement with the father, you can see that in the end of Luke's story where Luke has to confront his father figure, Vader, and he either has to overcome the father figure, that would be, you'd see that oftentimes in many heroes' journeys where the, the hero actually has to defeat or kill the father figure to overcome, or he has to be reconciled with him. And Luke's climactic final encounter was an act of forgiveness. It was an act of reconciliation, redemption with the father. And I, I, obviously, I think this is a much better way of ending that story than him killing Vader. Um, I think it actually speaks to how Joseph Campbell's hero's myth, Lucas is borrowing that, incorporating that, but also nestling this hero's journey within the broader Christian ethos and value value system and structure where Luke is not motivated by revenge. He's not merely going to kill his father, but he's going to seek the forgiveness and redemption of his father. So that's why I think that's that's what makes Star Wars, just as a side note, one of the most impactful stories in our culture. It's not just the, you know, the lightsabers and the music and all of the toys George Lucas wanted to sell, but it's that this hero's journey is actually nestling itself within the larger value system of the Christian story in the way it it ultimately and finally resolved. Again, that for me would be the final resolve. I know there's sequels, the the sequels that came out afterwards, but for me, that that is where Luke's story ended. So when we look at some of these patterns, they should help hopefully help you understand and identify when you are reading stories, when you're watching films, and you notice this sort of hero's journey happen. Hopefully, as you have these other reference points, you can go, oh yeah, there's a reason why this story so deeply resonates. It's because it's fitting this pattern, this monomyth pattern. But the question that we lead, led this episode off with, and the question I ended the last episode off with is, can you have this kind of hero's journey within the framework of metamodernism? Yes. And it's been done in absolutely stellar fashion in the animated Spider-Verse movies, starting with Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Miles Morales is the quintessential metamodern hero. First, let's talk about why the animated Miles Morales Spider-Verse movies are metamodern. And kudos to Damian Walter for being the first person I've seen online to properly identify these films as being metamodern masterpieces. I, I think they are masterpieces. I think they're probably some of the best comic book movies ever made. Um, they're definitely near the top of the list for me. How are these meta-modern stories? Okay, so let's think about this. And I and if you've hopefully you've seen both of these movies at this point, not there's not really like spoilers about about either of those two movies in this per se. There'd be some details I think you could probably gather from the trailers, but if you haven't watched it and you don't want anything spoiled, then you can pause the podcast now, go watch them, come back and listen. <laughs> they're great. I love them. Uh, excellent. I think uh, they're, they're family friendly too. You can watch them with your kids. Your kids will love them too if you have kids. 
But how is this metamodern? Okay, first of all, let's look at, remember some of these key ingredients that we're looking for. It's like metamodernism is a flavor that we decipher. It's not something that we go necessarily and be like, I think this filmmaker is trying to make a metamodern movie. Maybe they are, but what's much more likely is that they are attuned to the cultural moment and they are grabbing from, oh, where are they grabbing it from? That's an interesting question. (laughs) We can get back to some terminology maybe that we haven't used in a few years on this, this podcast, but if you think about culture and the three dimensions of culture that we've talked about, spirit, aesthetic, and labor, and how a a culture's spirit is the invisible values. It is the invisible story that storytellers and artists look to pull out of this invisible arena (laughs) and pull into the material through aesthetic creations like films, books, art, whatever the case may be, where we're taking something that is yet to be visible and making it visible through aesthetics. So where are these storytellers getting it from? That's a really interesting question. I think that speaks to what is happening, I think, beyond our eyes, that our eyes are only getting hints at, that that we are actually experiencing what can truly be called a profound spiritual change in our culture in this moment. And so I actually think what's happening, I don't know, if I were to be able to sit down with the filmmakers, uh, and I can't remember who it, who it is, I think I should probably know this. Is it the Lord Brothers? Let me look at Wikipedia here real quick. Yeah, okay, so it looks like maybe there aren't brothers, but Phil Lord, and I'm pretty sure Phil Lord also did uh, the Lego Batman movie. I think think Phil Lord was actually supposed to do Han Solo before he got booted. Anyways, that's a bunny trail for another time. I don't know if Phil Lord and the other creators of this movie, again, are like intentionally going, let's make a meta-modern Spider-Man story. I think, again, what's far more likely is they're, they're pulling from the spirit that is happening, the spiritual shift that's happening in culture, and they're extrapolating from that and and bringing it into the aesthetic domain. And they're doing something here that's really interesting. So where are they pulling? So as they pull these, these things into their aesthetic domain, what should we be looking for? Okay, so first, here's, you know, here's several examples of how these Spider-Verse movies are meta-modern. First of all, you have that sincerity and irony dichotomy, the oscillation that we've talked about in the previous two episodes. Remember, as we were talking about that, that metamodernism, one of the most clearly identifiable features about metamodern storytelling is when you can see this interplay between sincerity and irony, this oscillation, where irony is in service usually of sincerity, but it's not sincerity in like the sort of like TGIF, Full House, and like Family Matters, kind of like, uh, what would you call that? Syrupy or maybe sentimental. It's not that. Metamodern storytelling is using the irony that was so often employed in postmodern storytelling for critique, and it is using it to get at sincerity, saying something sincere. Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse and across the Spider-Verse does that perfectly, right? 
there is this dichotomy that's already always happening where these highly ironic self-referential moments are leading to moments of sincerity moments of sincere human experience about relationships relationships with parents navigating your teenage years navigating what it feels like as a teenager to be different navigating you know romantic relationships all of these things about the the human experience sincere but it's it's not again that like kind of preachy TGIF mode. <laughs> As some of you old enough remember TGIF, thank what was it? Thank God it's Friday or thank goodness it's Friday. All those shows. It's not that. It's like you can see how simultaneously at the same time the movie like pokes fun at these superhero tropes. So there's your irony. And then it's like playing with the visual styles of comic books in this way that is ironic, self-aware, and yet it's deeply sincere. It's deeply sincere in the portrayal of Miles Morales' journey, the weight of responsibility he feels as somehow becoming Spider-Man. You can also see in it this the dichotomy or the dance between deconstruction and reconstruction. So. Remember that irony was often in postmodernism a tool of deconstruction, but if you think of the dance between irony and sincerity as a dance also between deconstructing and then the sincerity of how do we reconstruct, you can see that in these films as well. The film deconstructs the traditional Spider-Man narrative by introducing the spider people from these different dimensions. And each of them represent a unique facet of the Spider-Man mythos, oftentimes highlighting flaws uh, with those characters, uh, critiques with those characters. So most obviously you have the aged Peter B. Parker, like the original Spider-Man, and he is not doing so well in like a midlife crisis. He's not been able to have uh, a stable relationship with Mary Jane, his love of his life. He is not able to even stay in shape anymore. So they are using the the these different spider people from across these different dimensions to highlight not just the strengths, but also critique the weaknesses and flaws of the more modern hero journey story. So you can see in there, there's the critique of Peter Parker. And Peter Parker as the, you know, the original Spider-Man is very much a hero that fit neatly within, especially in his original incarnations, fit neatly within the modern framework of storytelling, the modernist framework of storytelling, which again was about celebrating virtuous and resilient individuals who are oftentimes heroically transcending failed institutions, hierarchical institutions. Remember, that was the modern story, the modern story which was critiquing the traditional story, the modern story which was, again, post-enlightenment, post-reformation, the individual over the institution, over collective groups. And you see that in many of the modern stories of heroes. You can see that in Superman and Batman, Spider-Man. They are all vigilantes operating outside. They're, they're not employed by the institutions of the police force. In fact, they're oftentimes at odds with it. 
you can think of how uh, Spider-Man's, I wouldn't say his arch nemesis, but his most vocal critic, J. Jonah Jameson, is always trying to portray the individual as a menace. He is... He is uh, outside of our established institutions, like our legacy media here, a newspaper. He's not working with the police force. You know, this is many of the same ideas you'd see in Batman stories, right? This is happening as a modern, it's an acceptable modern story. But then what you see in the Spider-Verse stories is how they are taking that and they're going, yeah, but look at Peter Parker failed in this, this, and this. So you see that element of like postmodern deconstruction, but it's it's not it's not leaving you there in a state of cynicism. What it's actually trying to do, and what it actually shows as we get into the end of that first movie and into the second movie, is yeah, there's potential here for Peter Parker, the original Spider-Man, to to keep improving. Like there's room, these critiques can actually lead to positive reconstruction for Peter Parker. He doesn't have to always be uh, like this. He doesn't have to be, yes, that same thing which made him above and outside of the law is also the same thing that makes it almost impossible for him to have a stable relationship or wife or to be able to raise children properly. All of those critiques are not leaving you there with like, all right, now these, this hero's journey is total hogwash. This guy's not a hero. It's intended to actually bring you to the point of going, oh, hey, there might be room for reconstruction here. And that's what makes this an interesting interplay. The film is deconstructing that story while simultaneously going, hey, there is room for positive reconstruction if we become aware of the flaws that existed in that other story. Not just leaving you there in ruins, but saying, now that we know this, how can we reconstruct in a more meaningful way? Not only that, but you also have in these the Spider-Verse movies, you have those, you have the self-referential aesthetics, which is a key feature of metamodern storytelling. You have to have like the sort of wink wink at the camera that many, you know, you might say was part of the postmodern way of, of storytelling. The I am breaking the fourth wall, like I'm aware that I am situated in a story. And that was, of course, part of the postmodern critique of modernism. You're not aware that you're in a story. You're not aware that your your universal claims are oftentimes masking a play for power. You know, the postmodern and postcolonial critiques of colonialism, which would say, you know, your big overarching stories, your Christian stories, these were stories that were masking attempts at power and and to subjugate people with these stories. So I think in this generation, if you're going to have an opportunity to demonstrate like sincerity, to demonstrate uh, a pathway to reconstruction, I do think what might be necessary is to be someone that in your storytelling demonstrates a sense of self-awareness about your 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 location within a story, right? So it's not to say like the postmodern critique would leave you to believe lead you to believe that uh, you you can't live in a story at all. That would be like the inevitable conclusion of taking postmodernism seriously. If all stories mask a play for power, then even that story 
is a play for power. And then what does that leave you? It leaves you in some sort of like narrative abyss. It leaves you in the void, a story void. So what metamodernism is trying to do is trying to recognize, can I be aware that there's the possibility that the story I am in is delusional while still trying to pursue meaning within a story? And I think in order for that to happen, metamodern storytellers have to have to do this thing where they are demonstrating, signaling their, their that they're self-aware. And so it's like kind of like letting the audience know, hey, we know we're not blind to this. We're not naive. We know we're in a story, but like we're trying our best here. <laughs> and so I think even just acknowledging that might be one of the key ways that a metamodern storyteller can actually invite metamodern people into a place of openness about reconstructing. And the, you're doing that by kind of saying, hey, we get it. We're in a story. But now that we've shown you that we're aware we're in a story, can you just like give us a little bit of trust here? Can you open up a little bit? We're not trying to trick you. We're not trying to colonize you. We get it. And that self-referential, self-awareness, I'm in the story, and I'm inviting you into is just, I think it's a really unique feature of metamodernism that I, I'm really interested as we see more of this happening, as we see more of these kinds of stories take place, I wonder what kind of effect it will produce in people. Will it ultimately make them more open to the possibility of immersing themselves within an overarching story to actually commit themselves to a story? to commit themselves to a story story in a way that is both committed and yet humble about the potential blind spots and flaws. I'm very interested to see how that happens. And I, I'm very interested to see actually how some of this, I, I see it happening too. And I, I'm going to talk, I'd like to talk more about this at some point. But I also see it happening among those that I think are having success in religious context here, traditional religious context, connecting with people in my generation and younger in particular in a way that is, is helping them reconstruct. And there's this sort of thing, and I see it happening, uh, may I'll just highlight maybe a couple of friends that I, I think are, are doing it well, and if they're listening now, Open, open invitation to come on and have a, have a chat about this sometime. And maybe we'll all reach out to you to do it. But again, I, I think like um, my friend Andy Squires is doing this right now. And Andy is writing, in particular, his, his writing, his songwriting too as well. But the way his, um, his books, his posts have connected with like a broad audience in this really fascinating way is I think not only is Andy employing this like sort of sincere irony, right? But he's also demonstrating this kind of weird paradox of like conviction and humility about his, the possibility. It's like when you're reading and when I talk with Andy, it's like he, he simultaneously could be tell you something that makes you feel like you're, you're more convinced about this story than any other story, you know, the story he's living in. 
And then at the same time, you could also hear him be like, yeah, but I could be totally wrong about it <laughs> at the same time. And I, I think that kind of captures something that might be needed in this particular moment is this sense in which people being open and honest about the stories that they're living in and yet going, not doing the postmodern move of going, well, that must mean they're all relative. But it again, I, I think it's hopefully something I'm trying to do too, which is to say, here is the story I'm living in. And like, we all live in a story. Yeah. But we can't help but live in a story. So there's no, we're not getting to some like objectively neutral place. And we're never getting to some point of having no stories that we live in. So if we are and we acknowledge we have to live in one, maybe being honest and humble about it might be the path forward to reconstruction. Kind of thinking out loud about that one. That might be a, something that deserves further exploration. Back to Spider-Man. In these Spider-Verse movies, Miles Morales is the kind of hero that the postmodern critique of modernism and traditional hero myths, it's what they were looking for. He's a black Spider-Man born to a diverse family with an African-American father and a Puerto Rican mother. But neither of these two movies, while they are highlighting someone that the postmodern critique was like, hey, traditional stories, modern stories, you've had these heroes journeys and they seem to be showing the same kind of hero over and over again, which whether or not that was true or not is a side point, but that was the critique. And so it's like, hey, Top Gun and you know, with Tom Cruise and, you know, Luke Skywalker and name all of your heroes from all like your 80s action stars to your Rambos, your Rockies. They're like, hey, all you're featuring is white guys. Well, then here comes a story with a black Spider-Man. And so it kind of like checks off that box of going, all right, the postmodern and critique was like, you're missing. There are people here that your modern story is missing. And so here comes a story where it's like, yeah, now we've included somebody into the story. Can we do the hero's myth with them? And I think what these movies do really, really well is it's not that sort of like postmodern. It's not the, and I'm not doing like a Jordan Peterson move and saying postmodernism and Marxism is the same thing. That's, that's not what I'm saying. But I do think that what Peterson does get at is that there are commonalities between the two in some fascinating ways, even though they might have originated in, in different points and at different times in, in ways that make them not the same. But there are some overlapping patterns, and one of which would be, you know, this idea that people get status from the groups that they are part of instead of accumulating their status through merit. We talked about this, I believe, in the last episode, the difference between meritocracies, meritocracies in the modern story, and aristocracies of the past, and the sort of inverted aristocracy goals of postmodernism, which were to, again, maybe bring back the sense that people should have a, um, a sense of identity attached to group and not necessarily to the merits of what they have accomplished in their life because the the postmodern critique has been that the game has been stacked by people within a system that doesn't allow people to actually achieve their status simply through the accumulation of merit for example 
how, you know, the critique would have been, well, why is the Spider-Man story and the Batman story and the Superman story all featuring white guys? So now you have a story where there's a black Spider-Man, right? But the interesting thing about these, uh, these movies is that it also doesn't kind of, they don't, from my vantage point, I'm, I'm open to you disagreeing. You can reach out to me on Twitter or in the discussion forum on Patreon to disagree with me. I don't think either of these two movies carries that baggage of postmodern cynicism. Miles Morales is a hero that the modernist storyteller can enjoy because his heroism is based on merit, not merely on like what particular group he identifies with. So it's not really a story that would, uh, I, I don't think it would like make Marxist revolutionaries really happy. <laughs> you know, Miles is a hero that, it's not his heroism, his heroism isn't, it's not divorced from the fact that he's a minority. It's not divorced from that. In fact, it's some of the unique struggles of being a, you know, a, a black teenager uh, who's into science and goes to a private school and he's struggling with that sort of stuff. That's part of the story. But he's a hero not because of sort of like the incidental things that he was born into the world with, like skin color, right? I'm not trying to minimize that, but what I'm saying is like the story is not, it's not denying that. And yet it's also, I think, playing in a way that plays well with the hero's journey. And it plays well with modern storytelling because it is focusing on how Miles is a hero because of the, his virtue, because of his journey of transformation. So now would be an appropriate time to talk about, like, all right, how does Miles Morales in these movies, with all of the meta-modern vocabulary and aesthetic, how does he actually go through a hero's journey? Miles Morales starts off as a teenage boy. His story begins as a teenage boy living in Brooklyn. He's struggling with fitting in at this prestigious school. He's dealing with expectations of his parents, strict father figure. Again, these are kind of like in America. Maybe this is, I shouldn't say a universal in America because America is a particular culture, but I'd say it's, a, it's an experience that is not necessarily restricted to uh being a you know an af a, a black teenager with an african-american mother a father and a puerto rican mother living in brooklyn that i don't think that's the thing that makes his story easily identifiable. it identif is identifiable with those who have that experience and yet it transcends that because it focuses on you know this beginning of his hero's journey where he is He's got a comfortable life, but, you know, he's struggling with some of the common things every teenager struggles with, fitting in an expectation of parents. And then there's the call to adventure. Miles takes, his life takes this dramatic turn where he is bitten by the radioactive spider. He goes through an experience similar to the original Peter Parker story, a random radioactive spider comes into the scene, gives him these abilities he didn't ask for. He wasn't looking for it. 
And that's where you see, again, one of the common ingredients is initially there's a refusal of the call to adventure. Miles is a little bit reluctant to embrace the, the responsibilities that come with these new abilities. He wants to return to ordinary life. That's one of the great features of the Spider-Man stories across mediums from comic books to the Tobey Maguire movies to the Andrew Garfield movies to the, who's the new guy again? Tom Holland, not the historian, is that that this sort of struggle when you're at that threshold, the threshold into the unknown is that you may initially experience a sense that you might want to refuse this call. You want an ordinary life. You're reluctant about the responsibilities that would come with moving beyond the known into the unknown. And it's at this point in Miles' journey where he encounters a mentor. He has a guide to help him along his way. His Obi-Wan Kenobi is Peter B. Parker, the Spider-Man who has gone through the hero's journey, and he is the one that is the subject of critique. The critique of, well, maybe this hero's journey is not uh, highlighting all the ways that these sorts of heroic attributes we celebrate about these heroes can also produce massive flaws in them. And you see these flaws in Peter B. Parker. He's a good mentor in some ways. Uh, he's caring. He, he genuinely cares about Miles. But he's also like a negative object lesson for him to learn from. You can learn from his failures too as well. And so that makes him fit, not just like the original Obi-Wan. So if we throw out the stuff that we know from the prequels and the Clone Wars, but like the original Obi-Wan, if you're sitting in the theater uh, with, you know, in A New Hope in 1977, 77 or 78 when it came out, there aren't really like clear flaws to Obi-Wan as a mentor in that story. He's not presented as having those. Now, as you get later into the other films, you can start to see, well, did he lie about this? There's critiques about that. But it's not the same thing that's happening here. And so even as this hero's journey is happening and he encounters his mentor, his mentor is still being subjugated within the metamodern storytelling to the critiques of the postmodern aspect of metamodernism. So again, if you think about metamodernism as the, we're trying to grab from postmodernism and modernism and traditional stories, it's grabbing from that postmodernism, but it's still putting it within the hero's journey story. So Peter B. Parker is a flawed, but responsible mentor who helps Miles cross the threshold. He accepts his role. He sees Peter's sacrifice, right? And he He's determined to go out and to, to stop Kingpin. Along the way, he's got additional aides that, that come to help him. Gwen Stacy, the spider pig, what do they call him? Spider pig or spider ham, Peter Porker. <laughs> the uh, noir Spider-Man. Um, you've got like the, the anime spider gal. What was, what was her name? Was it Penny? Penny Parker? I don't know. They all come along to assist. Think of all of the other heroes' journeys that we've talked about. Um, Bilbo and Frodo on their journey. They have additional people that come alongside them that are adding to them. They're adding to their journey. And it's not like a, it's not, not that this is all just about the hero. The hero is also learning from not just from them for their ben for their own individual benefit, but the hero is learning about the necessity of having 
companions on the journey with them. So at the end of Into the Spider-Verse, this isn't like a major spoiler. I'll just say that uh, Miles is victorious over his nemesis. Uh, he confronts someone that is very much like, like an oppressive father figure. You know, he's, he's playing that role. And uh, Miles gets this sense of accomplishment. He also mends his own relationship with his father, with his biological father, who doesn't know that uh, Miles Morales is Spider. He doesn't know that his son is Spider-Man. And then he receives guidance on how he should continue on the road back to uh, to go back home with the elixir. What he should do now, and of course, the the end of the first movie ends with him. We again could call it with him returning with the elixir. He goes back to ordinary life, but he's now embraced his new role as a hero, and that's how the beginning of the next movie starts with that now that we're back in the Shire, if you will, <laughs> now that we're back home, we've come back with the elixir. What is life like now? In Across the Spider-Verse, you see this pattern continue. Miles has returned with the elixir for the benefit of the community, but his story isn't over. And it's similar to uh, Luke Skywalker going from A New Hope to Empire Strikes Back. Miles now has to go on another cycle of the journey. But unlike Star Wars, He's doing all of this within the vocabulary and aesthetic of metamodern storytelling. Across the Spider-Verse, it isn't Empire Strikes Back. It's not like a modernist clone. It stays true to its original metamodern aesthetic and vocabulary. It's still self-aware. It's still at times self-deprecating. It breaks the fourth wall by incorporating memes that make you feel like, you know, these characters are aware of pop culture outside of their realities, in our own reality. What Across the Spider-Verse does is it foregrounds the challenge of what Campbell called confronting the father. Not only is Miles and Gwen Stacy both dealing with biological fathers who they feel are holding them back from their destiny, Spider-Man 2099, who has, I don't know, I don't know how, really remember how this happened, but Somehow he's become the head of the entire Spider-Verse over all the Spider-Men and women. He is also acting. He is playing a, a symbolic role of a father figure. He is placing limitations on Miles that he believes are for the greater good. But Miles and Gwen both are wrestling with whether or not they have to operate within the limits of their father figures, both their biological father figures and this Spider-Man 2099, this future Spider-Man who is also acting in this, this role of a limiting father, a father who believes he is setting boundaries, not only for their own good, but for the good of the whole. And they're going through a very typical, you know, you see this across, I mean, this was part of Luke's struggle too, even though it was his uncle, uncle, um, uncle Owen, that's right, uncle Owen. You saw that same thing where uncle Owen is placing limitations. He's saying, don't go beyond the known into the unknown. And that's not to say that is the role of father figures, but I think this is part of one of the recurring patterns you can see in these stories, which often focus on young people transitioning into adulthood, using the hero's journey as the method for telling that story. Is you see, oftentimes the story is about young people going from the known comforts and the lack of responsibility into a world of facing increasing responsibility 
in moving away from their own sense of identity being attached to their parents, to their family, to carving out their own unique sense of identity. And what does it mean to confront that father figure, to confront what seems like our limitations? And that it happens to all of us. I, I'm, I'm, I know I'm doing it with my own kids too in some way, where it's like, hey, you know, this is what is probably safe and for your good and for your well-being and for your health. And beyond that, you probably don't want to explore. And, and young people are learning how to navigate that in their teenage years into, a, into their adult years. And so that's what makes these stories so compelling. This particular story is, I think, who knows whether or not the second one will be regarded as better than the first one. But it's another great story because it's capturing these universals, right? And that gets to something that I think you know, the postmodern critique got wrong. And we can see it in the monomyth. You can see that these things resonate across cultures. And to me, it points to the value, not of some sort of like oppressive, overarching, singular story that flattens out all cultures, um, that makes people all speak the same language. That's not what I'm talking about. But I do think it speaks to the the existence of a universal story, a universal story that might go through some sort of prismatic, if you think of it almost like a light coming through a stained glass window and how the different portions of stained glass are taking that light and presenting different colors of it. I think that's what you can see across the cultures of the world. And I think what you could see is that uh, what what would it look like within the the Christian theological tradition for us to affirm the dignity and value of what God is doing in unique cultures while simultaneously saying, I think there is still over top it all something all of us, universal human condition is longing for. And I think you can see that. I think that's what makes these stories so great is that you have in these Spider-Man movies them speaking to something that is timeless and it is something that transcends cultures. It's about a universal experience that I think all teenagers experience. And that's what makes this such a compelling story, very well done, and it can all be done within the vocabulary and aesthetic of metamodernism. Well, thanks for listening to today's episode. I hope you found it insightful. I hope you learned something from it. I would love to hear from you what other things you are watching or reading or you're seeing out there that make you go, hey, I think this might this might be evidence of metamodern storytelling or art. You can reach out to me on Twitter or X, whatever we're calling it now, at Paul Anleitner. You can also reach out to me on Patreon. Uh, if you are a supporter on Patreon, a patron, then you can send me a direct message. You can participate participate in the discussion forum, or you can uh, reach out to me. We have a Discord server for the Deep Talks community, those that are interested in the sorts of subjects that we're often exploring on this podcast. We've got a group, and uh, I don't know how many people are in there right now, but uh, yeah, there's a good 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 number of people, and there's been some great conversations to happen over there. You can get access to that by becoming a supporter on Patreon too as well. Finally, I want to give an extra special thanks to Clint, Jesse, Alex, Daniel, 
Dave, Eli, Garth, Jean-Marc, Jesse, John Mark, Josie, J. Tom, Justin, Lola, Luke H., Matthew, Michael Hernstein, Paul, Rob, Sam, Stephen, and Tim. Thank you all for your generosity and thoughtfulness. And until next time, we'll talk again soon.